podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from a pop-up Chinese studio in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, and with me as usual is the man with the golden corn, Jin Yumi, known in some quarters as Jeremy Goldcorn, the man behind DanWei.com. How are you? I'm doing really, really well uh, tonight, Kaiser. Today in Canberra, Australia, was the launch of the second annual China Story Yearbook that my colleagues at Danway and I contributed to. Um, and uh, there's a small print run, and it's available in PDF and Kindle and various formats. And on the website, on thechinastory.org. So I'm just going to be, uh, if I can permit myself a little plug, but it's made me very happy. It was a lot of work. You can do what you want. Um, so the name of the thing is Civilizing China. Civilizing China, a title that has many people uh, up in arms. Uh, I, I, my arms are a little up. A little up. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's not intended to be patronizing. It, oh, it's intended to be nuanced. The effect, nonetheless, is incredibly patronizing. That was not the intended effect. But anyway, <laughs> I myself am very well. <laughs> well, thanks. Anyway, so as I was putting together notes for the show um, on Wednesday evening, Xinhua announced that five people had been arrested in connection with the incident Monday at Tiananmen, where an SUV rammed pedestrians, killing at least three and went up in flames just meters from the iconic portrait of Mao uh, at Tiananmen. Uh, Beijing police say now that a man named Uzmen Hassan was driving the vehicle along with his wife and his mother, all of whom died in the blaze. They uh, report finding gasoline containers and knives, metal rods, which I thought was an odd little detail, and, and banners with uh, reportedly jihadist slogans in the vehicle and are now calling the incident a terrorist attack. Now, originally, this show wasn't going to touch on what happened Monday at Tiananmen, as there hadn't been an explicit statement yet from the police, uh, at least uh, until Wednesday night. But now I think it's something we can talk about alongside the two other topics we'd originally scheduled for discussion tonight. Um, Because, at least by my lights, and Jeremy or our guests may well disagree, but I think there's a, a thematic link to these other stories. Those other topics are... First and foremost, the dismissal of Xia Yeliang. Xia is, or maybe was, is still? For the moment is. For the the moment is. A professor in the Department of Economics at Peking University. Uh, An assessment committee informed Xia in mid-October that a substantial majority, I think it was about 30-some, had voted against renewing his contract. There were some voted in his favor and there was an abstention, uh, which uh, his, his term was up for renewal, as they always are, every three years. Um, after quite a bit of contention. Um, Shah was, of course, an outspoken critic of the party, an advocate of multi-party democracy, a signatory, along with Liu Xiaobo, uh, to Charter 08, which I'm sure all our listeners are familiar with. But Peking University claims that he was fired for being a bad professor. He was rated poorly by his students, allegedly. Uh, he was subject of numerous complaints uh, about his low productivity in terms of published academic work as well. Uh, we are going to talk about Xia and about how different media outlets covered the story of his dismissal. And here, before I outline the second topic, I do want to introduce our guests today, since we had initially invited them to talk specifically about Xia Yeliang. And uh, we are pleased to welcome back Andrew Jacobs, who's a veteran correspondent for the New York Times. Great to have you back. I don't think you've been on since the uh, Summer Olympic one, uh, the 2012 London Games. Mm, Perhaps. It's a little scary being described as a veteran, but thanks. (laughs) You are a veteran. So um, uh, anyway, Andrew has written not one but two pieces about the dismissal of Shah for the New York Times. 
Uh, we are also delighted to welcome back Eric Fish, who until recently was a correspondent with the English edition of the Economic Observer, a, a Chinese economics publication. Uh, he is now writing for various publications, including most saliently for our purposes today, The Atlantic, uh, where he recently published a piece about the Shaiyeliang controversy. Eric's also the author of the blog Sinostand and a co-host of the China Hang-Up podcast, cousin to us here at Seneca. Mm -hmm. uh, great to have you back, Eric. Great to be here. Thanks for having me again. Great. Uh, so I, I mentioned a second topic. Uh, I guess it's now the time maybe to talk about it or that we'd originally planned for today. Uh, and that is the case of, of Chen Yongzhou. Chen, or um, is, again, or perhaps was, a, a young reporter with the Guangzhou-based newspaper New Express. And Chen, if you'll recall, was arrested by authorities from Changsha in Hunan province, who'd crossed the border into Guangdong to pick him up in connection with damaging stories he'd written about a partly state-owned heavy machinery company called <coughs> Zoom Lion, or Zhonglian. Uh, the New Express took the unusual step, that's um, actually quite rare, of actually printing on its front page calls for his release on two consecutive Very days. rare. I mean, Very. it was a huge, it said, Ching Fangren, please release him in huge type. Right, kind of massive like war, type. Almost like war had broken out. Right, right, yeah. right. Uh, then, in a strange twist, just a couple of days after his arrest, CCTV aired a confession by Chen. Actually, he was detained. He was only actually arrested formally today, I believe. Um, they aired a confession by Chen in which he admitted to taking payment to smear Zoom Lion, presumably on behalf of a competitor, though he's never explicitly said so. And for anyone familiar with the, the mercenary nature of, I'm afraid, too many of the um, uh, journalists working in China, you will know that blowjobs and hatchet jobs and just about any other job you want is If you have the cash. The price is right, right, <laughs> the price is right. So suddenly not everyone knew quite what to make of him or of this whole thing. Um, the theme that I'm suggesting here uh, that these two stories perhaps share is that in both instances, at least from where I sit, I mean, uh, the initial reaction seems to uh, slot in uh, into what's kind of hardened over the years into a dominant mainstream media narrative uh, until new information or new developments give observers reason to challenge that narrative. Now, you might very well want to challenge my little narrative here and, and push back on the notion that this so-called dominant narrative exists at all or suggest that it's just a straw man or that the narrative uh, is actually in place for very good reasons. But let's let's use these topics, Xia Liang's dismissal, Chen Yongzhou's confession, and what Chinese law enforcement is calling a terror attack in China's symbolic political heart to talk through some of these issues. And uh, maybe I could just chirp in because, uh, Kaiser, you and I don't see necessarily eye to eye on all of these things. But I think for this show, what we would like to do is not talk so much about the events themselves, but about the way they are reported in English and how we talk about them and what assumptions we make. Yeah, I think it's... And what assumptions we don't make. Cynical listeners are always very interested in hearing how the news is reported. Um, and I think that we have a terrific opportunity to talk to two people who were on the ground doing reporting, uh, coming up with, uh, with, you know, different conclusions. But uh, Andy, let's start with you. Um, when you reported this story, you talked to some students. The Xiaoyi uh, the, the Liang story. Yeah, that's right. We're starting with the Xiaoyi Liang story. Huh? And none of them apparently said anything about Xia being a bad professor, um, did you see or hear anything in the course of your reporting that would have led you to believe that it was anything but a political dismissal? Um, the students we talked to uh, were, were, by and large, very uh, uh, 
favorable about his teaching style. There's some people said he was a bit pedantic. Mm-hmm. Um, but no cause for dismissal. <clears throat> I mean, he's a pedant after all. Right. Uh, it was only after um, his dismissal where people came out of the woodwork, uh, some students uh, complaining about his teaching, uh, that I kind of we circled back at the second story and included more of those voices. Uh, it doesn't, for me, doesn't change my, my basic view of the story, but I think it was important. Um, uh, I'm glad we got that in the second time. Um, it, you know, it added a little more dimension to the story, but I don't, uh, it, for me, it doesn't change uh, the essential kind of Okay, I mean, narrative. did you have uh, any reaction that you'd care to share with us when you saw the piece in the Atlantic that Eric over here wrote? <laughs> Which was, you know, pretty implicitly critical. I mean, not directly, but implicitly critical of your first take on, on the whole I mean, I, th- I think I think it's... it's um, I mean, it's legitimate to have those voices. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always, I know China is hard to get people to talk on the record. I'm always wary of, of people being allowed to speak anonymously. I know we're, we, we do that. Um, but if you're going to badmouth a professor, I feel like you got to, and this is not a criticism of you, of the, of the people you talk to, then put your name to it. Um, you're not going to lose what you've got, what you've got to lose. Uh, so that, you know, and I, 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 the only criticism I would have is I felt the piece uh, could have kind of stepped back and said, yeah, he, he probably was a, or it could have been a lousy teacher, but being a lousy teacher is not the only reason why we should think he got fired. I mean, I, I think you there are, you know, there's certainly other factors at play, and I thought it focused a bit narrowly on that, but it but it certainly helped spark a debate, and I, it certainly got us to push deeper, and in our second story, to, you know, to find more students who, who said exactly what your, the people in your story said. I mean, there are definitely people who Cheerful. thought that he was... A... Everything worked out as it's supposed to. Let me turn that to you then. I mean, your piece was criticized in some quarters for being one-sided, mm-hmm. and claiming that this was all about his bad teaching and not at all about his political views. Um, how did you respond to those critics? Yeah, um, I, there are some fair criticisms of my piece. Um, what you outlined is definitely fair. There were some criticisms that I think weren't fair at all. Um, but yeah, the, the one-sided piece um, that I, I, well, I mean, all the students that I talked to did not have nice things to say about him. So I didn't feel that I was unfair in that regard. Um, but I guess if you want me to go back and go through how I went through the story, I yeah, I'd actually be really curious about how you how you found these students. Okay. And... Yeah, well, I'm not going to get into fine fine detail, but uh, it actually started to maybe a day or two before he was uh, told that he was going to be fired, um, and I like I was pretty much on on board with the prevailing narrative that this was political, that it was purely political, and I still don't discount that politics played a role in this, perhaps even a predominant role, and that's probably 80, 90 percent of the criticism that I've been getting is. How can you rule out the politics played a role in this? But, which, but to be fair, you didn't rule it out, right? I mean, it was no, in your piece. It was there in your piece, right? Yeah. and I, But not in, in the headline. And I guess maybe <laughs> we can talk about the role of the headlines in, in, in a bit. Mm, sure. So, yeah, I, I never ruled out politics and get to that. Um, but it just hand, happened randomly. I had never really intended to cover this story, but I was talking to a friend at Beida at Peking University and I had done a podcast myself the week before on education issues, and I brought this up with the interviewee about, do you feel like you're selling your soul or, or making a deal with the devil if you are a foreign university and you make a deal with universities in China when you have stuff like Xia Liang happening? And my friend at Beida was like, oh, actually, a lot of the students are pretty mad at how this story has been covered. And I mean, a lot of the students here don't like Xia Liang. He said he was a bad professor, and I hadn't heard this, and I mean... To be fair, too, Beida had not given its side of the story up to that point. They hadn't, they'd been pretty quiet on as to why they were holding this vote, why they were going to dismiss him. So, I mean, 
I don't blame people for not going after that angle of the story up to that point, but she said this and it kind of sparked something in my head and hmm, maybe there's more to the story and it happened that I have other contacts in Beida, so I started sending out my feelers and what I didn't want to do is find people online who for whatever reason had self-selected themselves and come out in favor of Shah or opposed Shah. I wanted to contact people out of the blue and get their take on it and I started talking to people, and I, I mentioned four students of Shah's in the piece. Those weren't the only people I talked to. I talked to other secondhand sources on my way to those four, and pretty much everybody was saying that, yeah, we heard he's bad, and the closer I got to students that were actually in his classes, the more they said, yeah, he was a terrible professor, he went off on these irrelevant tangents for most of class, and he was very dogmatic about what he said. Self-aggrandizing, <laughs> yeah. talking up his heroic deeds. Right, yeah. and I, when I had first planned to do this, I... I didn't know where the story was going to go, what angle I was going to cover it from, and I figured I would find students that were going to say positive things about him, and it just wasn't happening. Um, and you talk to students, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I also didn't want to talk to students who are currently in his class because his ass has kind of been on the line since the beginning of summer. He heard this vote was coming up. So if I'm him, I'm going to change the way I teach this particular semester. Uh, so I didn't really want to talk to current students, and I got a range of students different years. And they were all pretty much telling me similar things. And if they had all told me exactly the same bullet points with the same buzzwords, I would have been a little suspicious about that. But they had their own complaints. They had their own, like, takes on it. But there were these similar themes. So I figured, I mean, there's really nothing to be suspicious about here. And if somebody had said something positive about him, by all means, I would have included it. And I know there's other ways I could have found positive comments. Um, I could have looked on a Weibo, but again, I didn't want to find somebody that way who'd already self-selected themselves. And uh, this Ping Laosher thing has been circulating to uh, this Rate My Professor in Chinese. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, honestly, I saw that after my piece had been published. Uh, but even if I had seen that before, I don't know if I would have included it. Because if you look at it, anybody, including professors themselves and students who've never gone anywhere near Beidou can make ratings. So to me, it wasn't a substitute for talking to real people. So, I mean, that's how I kind of went about it. And again, I, nobody really gave me reason to suspect that something was amiss, that they were being told what to say. So, so Eric, can we like, home in on the headline question that Kaiser raised? Because I think that's part of it. I mean, all of this stuff is about framing and a headline mm -hmm. frames a piece. And the headline that was attached to your piece was basically BuzzFeed Vice Magazine <laughs> link bait. Uh, what was it exactly? It was... Sometimes, remember. sometimes I, a professor is fired just because he's bad, right? right. That was Even if he's a dissident or something like that. But it, it, it kind of was a bit of a link baity headline, which uh, I assume you didn't write. Right. I, journalists <coughs> don't choose headlines, so I'm not gonna. No, they don't. That. They don't. So you can't <laughs> comment on the headline. But I think that for many readers who you know read your piece and then were alarmed and uh, you know decided that you were a stooge of the Global Times or something. <laughs> The right. headline I mean, that was, actually came up in some quarters. People the, were saying, oh, you know, this man has written for the Global oh, Times, yeah. therefore he's a One stooge. favorite conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, but um, I mean, w what do you do about that as, you know, a journalist who, and, and Andy, I'd like to hear your view on this too, but I mean, somebody who you, you submit the story, it gets framed in a certain way. And if you're not a very careful reader, what you will take away from it is that you're saying the guy was totally bad teacher and there's nothing else going on and he was just fired because he was a bad teacher and i think we all agree that that's not the only thing that was going on mm. that there's definitely a political angle to it right. like there is to everything in china right and i mean my the angle of my story was to tell the side of these students and i know 
again, I didn't mention positive comments. I know he must have fans out there, and I think I mean nobody has a 100% disapproval rating, so I don't discount that either. But at the end of the day, there was this large segment. I mean, I got the impression this is not just a small minority of students. There are a lot that really feel that this was justified, and that was my story, is this, these students that felt they hadn't had their story told. And, I mean, yeah, I, I, felt, I felt I was fair in giving background and telling the other issues and, like, the way he was dismissed, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions, but, I mean, at the end, this was my story on the students that... That didn't... And you've right. been on the other side of this whole headline thing before, for sure, right? I mean, where, where you've had people say, oh, look, you've written this terribly biased story here. Uh, well, I have to say, for, for these days with the, the, the World Wide Web and, and kind of... Um, digital publishing the great thing about the times is when the story comes out and if you're awake and you and you look at it and you you don't like the headline you can just call or email the editor and ask them to change it which i, I actually did last night with that Tiananmen arrest uh, uh story well, what um, was the, i mean if you uh if originally it said five jihadis uh arrested or jihadist i'm sorry uh, and I just thought it was a little too strong because yeah, that's um, that the implication was that they were jihadists, but I thought it was just maybe better say five suspects. Sure. Uh, so yeah, so we we did get criticized a lot of the New York Times, but lately I've been I'm, I tend to be more vigilant these days, so I I make sure I, I look at the as soon as it's published, look at it online, and if I, if, if there's a problem, I try to suggest an alternative because sometimes these these are copy editors who are writing and they don't know China, they're reading the piece and they're coming up with something that fits in a very narrow slot. I mean, usually it, you have five words to do it in so they just it doesn't hurt they doesn't they don't mind me getting advice Headlines can we get back to the Shah story actually Eric sure. I have another question I'd like to ask you which is that um, I've talked to a lot of people about this for some reason it's just kind of crossed my radar and part of me wonders if there isn't a generation gap between you and many of your critics <laughs> how so <laughs> um, you're, you're a young guy well you're a young guy you're hanging out with actual Beidar students sure. and a lot of the people that I've heard say mean things about your piece are tenured professors. Okay. Um, you know, I think there's a, they look at it from a completely, you know, generationally, career-wise, financially. I mean, they, they have a completely different perception. I mean, does does that make any sense to you? Like a perception of the story itself and what's happening? or A perception of the reality on the uh, ground, a perception of what happens, a perception of, like, yeah. what's right and what's wrong. You know, perhaps they are more inclined to stand up for the professor and you'd be more inclined to stand up for the student. And what about the students themselves? You know, today's, beta, today's college students, what does it say about them and the way they see these, these kinds of events? I don't know. If, if, yeah. that, that's that very interesting a, too. Right? Interesting I mean, are they just, yeah, that is an interesting, I mean, in fact, maybe the people you talk to are just these people we increasingly read about who just want to join the party and have or no morals and brainwashed millennials. Following the herd. I, I've heard this <laughs> criticism too. And the thing that, thing that jumped out about me about this was two students that I talked to explicitly named Ho Wei Fang uh, when I was talking to them as a popular professor. And those who don't know who he is, he's another professor at Beida, uh, a law professor, and he's arguably been just as outspoken as Xia Liang. He signed Charter 8. He's been harassed by authorities. He's been exiled to Xinjiang. Right, right. <laughs> he's, yeah, no, he's, he's been through the ringer. Though he tends to focus more on the kind of legal, very legalistic mm. kind of arguments. He, he's, he's car- Xia Yalang was, was really throwing bombs, you know, about mm. the kind of Communist Party. And I feel like Ho Weifang is a little more thoughtful. And more careful. Yeah, I mean, they, they absolutely have their difference. But it just jumped out at me that these students, they were fans of Ho Weifang. He's very popular at the university. And they said... 
Ho Wei Fang is logical in what he says, and he teaches what he's supposed to teach. They, all of them emphasize this. We're not against the politics that he's after. This is not what we have an issue with at all. It really is his teaching. We're very open-minded and liberal. So I thought that those criticisms kind of sell Beta but students uh, Eric, short. But. Isn't it fair to say that there, there really haven't been many instances, at least that I've been able to, to, to dig up, in which a professor has been dismissed from Peking University only on the basis of merit where, you know, yeah, no, I agree, that's and that's true. that might be where the politics comes in. But I think a lot of people are looking at the story as black and white. And after my piece came out, a lot of people were saying, oh, bad professor or polit political victim. And I think that's a false choice. And I mean, you can look at the other possibilities in the middle. Maybe he was a terrible teacher that they wanted to fire, but because of his politics, he wasn't protected. Whereas other professors there might have people in the party committee that have their back. Or maybe they did want to fire him for his politics, and these complaints were an excuse to do so. But I think there's a distinction between falsifying complaints and using real complaints. So, I, again, I do not at all rule out that politics played a part in this. But you can't really say, is it politics or bad teaching? Because these are not... Yeah, and why do we need to go for monocausal <laughs> explanations for anything, after all? Andy, uh, last question on this subject, subject before we move on. Um, what prompted you to, to circle back and do that second piece? Um... Actually, it started with a call from Beida uh, uh, itself. The, the School of Economics uh, called our office and asked if we wanted to interview them, which I thought was uh, interview someone at the, the school, which I thought was pretty extraordinary. Cause Presumably, you tried before and they had declined, yeah, right? Yeah, and right. I think what happened is they realized that in the vacuum, uh, this information vacuum, the, the, the narrative was spinning out of, the, out of control, out of their control. And they wanted to rest it back, and uh, so we uh, we went and spoke to the dean and a few professors. Uh, they, they, I should say, they, they one of the things they did was present us uh, this at the at the end of the, the conversation a document uh, that signed by or that had been voted on by the staff demanding an apology from the New York Times for spreading untruths and lies, which we just kind of ignored and, and <laughs> laughed at. But then, but the the interview went uh, went pretty it was pretty interesting, I have to say. Yeah. Yeah, great. Did you feel like, uh, I don't know, did you feel like it was strange, like, them doing that, how much they fought back against this? Because it seems to me when stuff like this happens, PR apparatuses, whatever quarters of the government they are, tend to just try to lay low and hope it blows over. I don't know. Did yeah, I think what happened is they were they saw this was a real threat to the kind of, A, their, Im their you know, Integrity. global image, right. and then also the partnerships they, ha they have with uh, uh, schools overseas and, you know, the, with the Wellesley letter and other schools kind of saying they want to investigate. They, someone gave them good advice and said, you know, you gotta you got to speak to the media. Um, and they started out with that statement. Uh, or, or was it with Xinhua? There was an article placed in Xinhua. They put on their webpage, and then they spoke to us. So, they, you know. So all in all, I think that this was, uh, it turned out a very, to be a very healthy and instructive thing for everybody involved, I think. Uh, except uh, for Shah. Except for Shah. <laughs> <laughs> no, which, is, which is probably not the case so far with... Well, uh, he'll probably get a, a job at a nice American college somewhere, a liberal arts school right. somewhere in the Midwest. Right. I don't know. You know uh, <laughs> maybe Jerry... Conal. <laughs> if he's not completely right. burned. And then he'll yeah. turn on Jerry and he'll work with Bob Fu, have his iPad tapped. And, uh, uh, okay. I think he's more, yeah. Let's, let's, let's move on now to talk about Chen Yongzhou. Um, uh, David Bandersky, uh, who I always enjoy reading, um, the China Media Project, he aptly described this whole Chen Yongzhou affair 
as a steaming dog mess. <laughs> it mm, really yes. is. Um, so do, do you guys think that this is another case where there was sort of a standard narrative? In this case, you've got you know the intrepid investigative reporter for a Guangzhou-based paper, of course, the Mavericks in, in Guangzhou, exposing corporate misdeeds and who gets nabbed by uniformed thugs in the pay of, of the targeted company, which then uh, in the paper heroically calls for his release. Um, is this another one where it gets complicated in, in, in the light of new information or just further confused? I mean, I'm, I have a very cynical take on all these things, and I think it, what it showed, the whole, this and, and all three episodes we're talking about today, just shows the, how um, skillful the, the Chinese government uh, and its organs have become at controlling narratives. Uh, and I, I see this, that's for me the big picture takeaway, mm-hmm. is that um, <clears throat> we'll never know the truth about perhaps any of these things. But I think the, the the way this narrative has kind of been played out and convincing most Chinese readers is that the government uh, line has prevailed. I think um, that would be my initial kind of statement about that. Prevailed with what audience? Uh, with the chi- with the domestic audience. With the domestic audience. Do you think that people saw Chen Yongzhou uh, making this public confession and believed that this was earnest? That he's the truth is out now. I think for a lot of ordinary Chinese, if they're watching on CCTV. Uh, of course, I don't know for sure, but I right. think a lot of them will be like, oh, look, he's confessing to a crime we've all read about and in previous... Uh, uh, a million different accounts. times before. <clears throat> yeah, but just corrupt people. There's a lot of corruption in the society. Here's another corrupt person. They may not know the niceties of how, uh, you know, confessions are extracted or, you know, um, media, you know, restrictions and all that. So I think I, I, I that's my feeling. Um, and... Well, you know what I, I would say, because <clears throat> because of the, the nature of my changed Dunway business, I think we were actually the first English language outlet to report on this. But what we reported on, because we're evil capitalists now, was the stock price of Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> and, it went up. Well, interestingly enough, it you know, went up. It went well, yeah. After the conversion, boom, right, 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 right. back up, not quite but, to where it was before, but. Right. So um, there, there perhaps so what everyone is convinced of is that. The central government, because of its organ CCTV, is behind Zoom Lion. So if you own Zoom mm-hmm. Lion stock, you can rest easy. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's what that's that, that's my main takeaway from this, honestly speaking. But aside from the fact that everybody involved is stinks. stinks, it does. Yeah, the whole thing just stinks to high hell. I mean, Everything it's stinks. Just, it's. I want to know where the where's the middleman? The, uh, you know, exactly. where's the middleman well, why, who provided the the, the, right. the the money? Why is he willing to to confess to having been paid? And then I mean he has, and he's he's willing to name because we it. know it was a it was a, a confession extracted in in completely unfair terms. I mean, we 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 don't know. We can guess with ninety nine point nine percent certainty. Well, that's 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 an interesting thing that Andy said. That it, it really does show kind of a growing savvy uh, on on the part of the state on how to. Uh, to insert its own narrative and how to... And it's why these confessions are not going to stop because they, they are a very effective tactic. They're completely brutal. They they are opposed to the rule of law. They, they have nothing to do with the rule of law. They are, you know, I find them quite f- genuinely frightening. Yeah. Trial by CCTV. I mean, yeah. this is, this is, there's been quite a, a long parade this is of the, these. I mean, there have been three big ones recently that have, have felt the same in terms of people being hauled up in front of CCTV to confess uh, you know, long Xue, before Xuemanzi, Charles Shearmanza, the big V Weibo guy, who was originally bust for prostitution, confessed to that, and then confessed to being a naughty man on Weibo and <laughs> doing naughty things and misleading the public. Um, and and so did one of his. And then uh, we had one of his one of his uh, sort of uh, somebody who had used him 
to promote this the idea. PR firm, right. the Mr. Chin Ho Ho, the, the the first two big V type like PR rumor mongers that were busted. He he also confessed, and then we had Peter Humphreys, the British investigator, who uh, <laughs> was detained and then confessed to uh, trafficking and stuttering. In. stuttering. <laughs> and that wasn't a confession, but it was almost. <laughs> but it, it may as well have been. It may as well have been. And now we With have the this. exaggerated stammer. I mean, it wasn't that. He, it wasn't, it wasn't that bad. I mean, he's a bit of a awkward talk anyway. So, yeah, I think, like anecdotally, these these confessions do work wonders on public opinion, and uh, in a lot of ways, the government likes to present this good and evil image. Uh, I mean, everything in school and TV, there's a clear good versus evil. And when the story first started out, the reporter is good. He's a muckraker who's uh, been arrested for digging into this corrupt company, and then uh, all of a sudden, the tables turn, and now he's the evil one. Uh, who's falsifying this stuff? And I think a lot of people tune in at that point. They tune off at that point. They see him on CCTV in his handcuffs and his shaved head, and see, ah, oh, well, he's a criminal. And I think there's the more you dig into this, the more time that goes by, we see how murky it is. Who is this party that paid him? And there's like these business disputes that are now coming to light. Uh, we saw in that China file uh, story today with you. I think yeah, a lot of people tune out at this point, and they don't want to explore something in the middle of this good and, versus and what they can everybody. explore there's no way to, the, the, the media has not been allowed to explore it and mm. no one's come to his rescue to sort of delve into these these allegations exactly. uh, I, I want to quickly point to that that china file story that you made reference to that that's actually one of the uh, the more in-depth write-ups of, of of what's happened um the contributor wang feng and, and it, it really saddens me that there are people who who are convinced by these confessions because i just see them in in the court of my own conscience is inadmissible evidence i mean there's i mean what do you make of the shaved head i mean that's right i mean that's unbelievable if they never fucking did that to me man i'd go apeshit well we wouldn't want to see you with your hair <laughs> you yeah we'd go apeshit too <laughs> yeah you would too jeremy with your romantic <laughs> okay I mean, you know it of course it reminds me of, of these cases of of these journalists real or otherwise who uh blackmailed coal mine bosses up mm. when was that, that the case? yeah there was this story 2007 where a, a reporter was murdered when he was at a illegal coal mine of course the first reaction is oh what a hero he was killed in the line of duty but then it comes to light he might have been there to shake down the coal boss and get a bribe in exchange for not covering the story so then the narrative shifted again but then this time went on it got more and more complex with all this fake journalists and like, what was the paper's role in this? There might have been collusion with the local government and the coal mine. And just, I mean, we still don't know the full story of what happened there either. And it just, you want these black and white narratives at the beginning. And that is kind of the knee jerk. But they don't exist. They don't exist. And you'll never find the true story because in China, you know, you have these guanxi webs that are just endless. And you peel open one thing and it leads in a hundred different directions. And I, I think that's what's going to happen with this case is I don't think we're going to get a full picture of the story is just impossible. and i think and i think the the impact is going to be quite grievous i think for for chinese journalists and, I, and my feeling is majority of of, of of chinese journalists are mean well and want to do the right thing um i think this is going to be, have a real chilling effect to see what you know for i think for most most people that i know work in media and you know to see someone they can relate to being paraded in front of a camera with in handcuffs and their head shaved uh for over a story that they believe was legitimate it makes you not want to 
probe into these kinds of stories. It it, it really scares you. A chilling and, effect. And, and, and I think it will lead to even more self-censorship. And I think uh, if you, you know, step back, maybe this is all part of big, you know, new leadership's kind of plan. It seems uh, if, you, if you kind of want to fit it into the crackdown, perhaps, or maybe it's just coincidental, I don't know. Um, I think uh, once again, I, I want to refer to people, uh, refer people to the, the uh, China Media Project, Hong Kong uh, piece that David Bandersky just. The, put he, up there are two. I think the the three things you've got to read about this. The two by David Bandersky on China Media Project, right. and then uh, on China File, Wang Feng's explanation of the situation. He he, um, Bandersky in, in particular, um, you know, he really makes sure that nobody comes out of this smelling good because I mean, look. New Express folded. They basically accepted hook, line, and I mean, just lock, stock, and barrel, or whatever. Um, the the entire apology uh, claim, uh, and then they they issued their own apology, of course. Uh, the, the confession claim is what I meant, and then issued their own apology. And um, you know, the All China Journalists Association mm-hmm. fell down completely. They 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 are you know not sort of doing their job. Uh, I think it's worth wow. noting, too, uh, China Digital Times released a Ministry of Truth directive that said the All-China Journalists Association is about to come out with a statement about Chin. So run this statement. <laughs> so it seems that this was known ahead of time that the Journalists Association was going to flip on him. Damn. And um, the other thing that nobody's covered is the, the interesting situation of the, the paper itself, the New Express, which is under, I think, the Yang Cheng Wan Bao, which I think is under the Guangzhou... Provincial uh, party uh, propaganda bureau, but it's also got a lot of private investment, kind of very murky private investment. From some strange cat, right? There's that that weird Chinese Australian. uh, So, um, you know, who knows uh, what was going on? (laughs) Okay, well, um, you know that that that, this is just a a, a terribly unfortunate chapter here. Um, Another tragedy, of course, was the Tiananmen incident of October twenty eighth. just throw out a hypothetical here. Um, a couple of my friends were, and I were talking about this as it was breaking. And how, how do you think a, a suicide car attack resulting in, you know, dozens of injuries and a couple of deaths um, taking place, say, on the Washington Mall, would be reported in America? I mean, if it were discovered within a few days that, say, the, the perpetrators were were um, were Muslims. Kaiser, I mean, I, I think I, uh, we should let our guests respond. But I mean, I would like to just say one thing. I think we have actually the example. Almost exactly the same thing happened at the Boston Marathon. That's a good good point. You know, oh. there were two fatalities. It was a, a, a clearly an amateurish terrorist job, which this, you know, obviously, whatever you call it, was pretty amateurish. Jokar and uh, Tamerlan Tsarnaev. Uh, I mean, it was like homemade bombs. Same thing. Same number, more or less, of fatalities. And look at the the difference in the coverage. How would yeah, you? It would have been it would have been CNN nonstop, you know, uh, coverage. I think, uh, or what, or it was, and this would have been, and any other, and any society with the free media would have dominated. Uh, and I think it was very telling uh, here to see, uh, you know, the, how quickly and zealously uh, things were deleted um, from social media, and also the limited coverage initially, and in and. And the Chinese press, and then the and then when the arrest came, everyone covered, uh, carried Xinhua, this Xinhua article, and that was it. There was right. no no. There was no transparency no, in this at all. Yeah, no divergence from that narrative. But I mean, to be fair, I mean, maybe they were taking a page from what had happened in in Washington, where uh, I'm sorry, in, in in Boston, where there was some really a uh, huge and very very immediate 
ugly bubbling up of anti-Islamic, uh, anti-foreign sentiment, uh, really. Uh, and uh, the Wall Street Journal ran a piece by Josh Chin, who, whose coverage I, I quite like. And he looked at, at the, the nature of censorship after the Xinhua announcement went out, where they were focusing, according to him, on taking down things that might have, say, uh, encouraged ethnic tensions, um, you know, any, anything that, that linked Uyghurs to, to, to this uh, was, was being stricken. I mean, Jeremy, you and I were talking earlier, this is, this is almost the only acceptable case for 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 terrorism, I mean, if it's going to pr- prevent pogroms, if it's going to prevent for Uyghurs, censorship, so, you mean not terrorism? Right, 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 right. Yeah. For, for censorship, well, uh, same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, more. <laughs> if it's going to pr- prevent pogroms, there is also another thing that I mean, it's very curious because I tend to be a free speech absolutist, but I do find it the the Western um, media way of turning, you know, of making terrorism porn. Um, mm. There's something that makes me a little uncomfortable about it. I mean, you know, obviously 9-11 was a much bigger event than this. But, I mean, if you think of the months after that, the constantly, you know, okay, after a while the images of falling bodies and even the towers started to sort of disappear. But the, the constantly put in front of our faces these images of this violent scene, you know, which if this was – you know, in the United States, that, that there are a couple of, there are a few photos of this huge flame in front of the Mao portrait, right? Those would be mm-hmm. on the front page of every newspaper, wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. And there's something that is seems to me not, I'm not saying that you should censor that, but, you know, there's something wrong with the, the media when you make this kind of thing into a celebrity event. Mm-hmm. Well, whether the event was, was oh, good, good. <laughs> Eric, it looks like he had something to say. Oh, no, yeah, I think you're, you're right. I think part of the reason this is being suppressed is not just to save embarrassment for the government. It is to try and tame ethnic uh, unrest. Uh, we saw in 2009 uh, when this, these big riots broke out in Xinjiang. Uh, this stemmed from an incident where uh, it was said that a woman had been raped and just things kind of spiraled out of control and there was retaliation uh, against Han and Xinjiang. So I think to some degree that's what they're trying to prevent. And you, also, if you have flames burning right by Chairman Mao's portrait, I don't think that's a symbol that the government wants to get out there. So I think, yeah, it has, has these reasons for censoring, but I don't, I don't want to defend <laughs> for this reason. I mean, is, is the, the proper response in this situation here, I, I mean, unless you doubt completely uh, that this was any kind of a deliberate attack intended to take innocent life, it was an attack. That, that it was an attack. I would, I would, I would posit that 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 wasn't designed to maximize uh, the death of innocents. I, would, I think, nonetheless, uh, innocents yes, died, and, yes. and it, it was it was clear that 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 um, I mean, if you're going to drive a car at speed down a crowded walkway, there are going to be deaths. Uh, isn't a little maybe is is this the right time to make two thirds of your story about the uh, the oppressive conditions of the Uyghurs experienced in Xinjiang? Or should maybe a little more moral outrage, uh, uh, you know, at, at at this be the more appropriate response? Well, how do you express moral outrage when you're not getting any from? This is true too. You know, you, it's hard to tap into that vein when there's it, people don't know anything about it. The comments on Weibo were deleted, and the, at least as of yesterday, there was not there was nothing. There was no commentary uh, in, in, in in the Chinese media. Um, I guess you could have sent people out. We could have sent people out to the streets and interviewed um, um, 
passers-by but uh i see i see your point yeah mm-hmm. i see what you're saying i mean after 9-11 we weren't seen on cnn uh questioning america's role in israel and we so. should and we we should i feel like American maybe we should have. should have maybe maybe that uh, is the... maybe one has to meet sort of halfway like when this happens we should be a third of it should be about how terrible xinjiang is and two-thirds should be about the naughty terrorists and in when there's a terrorist event in the United States, you know, we should apply the same ratio. Mm. Uh, there should be significant discussion of America's, you know, naughty dealings in the Middle East. And sorry for using these twee English words. <laughs> they are twee. <laughs> I love that word. But I mean, I, there does seem to be. You're I mean, so I think it, it's imbalanced in the in the sense that here we tend to think, okay, well then. 90% of the story is that China is destroying Uyghur culture and the Uyghurs are oppressed. And um, and in the United States, <clears throat> you know, if you look domestic media, and I mean, the New York Times is obviously better than most of the American news media, but it's very difficult to get a sympathetic look at, like, your average Yemeni terrorist. Mm. Yeah. Isn't it? Like, it doesn't exist, really. That's right. Okay, great. You know, I'm 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 surprised we we've we've gotten this far, and we're we're in kind of large agreement about about this, which is I don't know if we are. We haven't let our guests talk, talk enough, Kaiser. Jeremy, there's still time. There's still time. You can. Well, I I mean I would I would say this the this to me the sad outcome of all this is there that there will be no introspection, and I think there should be, and I'm not, and I think in the U.S. after a terrorist attack there should be as well. But there will be no introspection uh, within China about uh, exploring why this happened. Uh, you know what 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 the potential discontent felt by these people who would take their own lives and kill others. What 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 was motivating them? And I think that's kind of to me the sad outcome is that. You're, you're, the average Chinese will have no idea what motivated them. They'll just think they were ex- religious extremists bent on, uh, you know, harming China and separating Xinjiang from from the rest of the country. Um, so there some be... people have kind of aptly pointed out what happens next is will the government use this as a reason to crack down further on Xinjiang, which will further aggrieve people and lead to more attacks well, like this uh, in the future. Do you, do you want to talk about that? I mean, to escape the sort of meta questions, mm. the media narrative, I mean, what is what is going to happen as a result of this? Are we going to see uh, intensified I think we need downs? to get used to it. This is going to, to, I mean, and after the death of the Dalai Lama, the inevitable death, um, you know, knowing that uh, there are factions there, quite powerful factions, uh, who have been sort of chafing under, under his um, moderating control and, and and wanting to embrace more uh, direct violent action uh, to include terror uh, I, I I seriously worry I think that um, I mean I'm gonna go so far as to say that five years out from now ten years out from now it will be uh, we, we will see ethnically based attacks occurring with some regularity in major Chinese metropolitan areas and I, I say that with pain and 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 horror, uh, but it, it doesn't look like we're making any serious progress toward mollifying uh, the very real uh, complaints, the very real you know uh, problems at at the root of 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 these things either. And you know here maybe I'm 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 just contradicting exactly what it is that I say that maybe moral outrage should be. But I I I, I do agree that in proportion, I mean, it's it's about finding the right proportion of, of 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 exploring the context and and doing a little bit of introspection while at the same time 
not uh, forgetting that innocent lives were taken. Can we um, go back to the media and ask, like, you're writing for The Atlantic, among other publications, and and you're at the New York Times. I mean, these are two establishment, liberal establishment media, uh, very old organizations that are are the most respect amongst the most respected uh, media organizations, news organizations in the United States. How much do you feel that your coverage of China is driven by a narrative that is set in Manhattan or in D.C. Um, that doesn't necessarily accord with the reality on the ground in China? Oh, I mean, I don't want to speak for any specific publication. Uh, but, yeah, I think there are a lot of these stories that kind of get away from maybe a more fair narrative because of things being driven back in their home countries. And uh, the, the one example I always look at is Foxconn and how consistently badly it's reported. And, and that's usually coming from people trying to report on it from the U.S. Um, and I don't see much problem with it. I'm talking about the spate of suicides or... Right, the suicides. And whenever there's any kind of riot, uh, there's a couple weeks ago there was something where it came out, two people killed in Foxconn riots and hundreds injured, but then inevitably six hours later, it's like, oh, nobody actually died and it wasn't that big. I mean, you can... this And they were making Samsung phones, (laughs) not iPhones. But that's a a link-baitish thing. People know to look... I mean, Christ, it's your iPhone, right? Andy, what, but what would you? Because I, the New York Times, I mean, stands particularly accused of, of this type of and see, I would, I, I can, crime. I mean, I can only speak for the Times because I don't know other publications. But I would say uh, the the agenda is completely driven by us here in Beijing because the editors, besides being twelve hours a time difference, know very little about China, and they look to us to to provide them, uh, you know, ins, insight and, and coverage of the China. So we, uh, I'd say, rarely get assignments from from New York. Uh, it's most of the most of the stories come from us during the course of the day, you know, off the news or just even features. We just deliver, the, you know, half the time they don't even know it's coming. We just deliver stories and they run them. And very little. Um, the only editing I get, and I, I think I say to say from my colleagues is 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 grammar and and you know just word stuff. There's very little content. So I, I would say for the times the, the it's not it's we're. I mean, obviously, we're most of us are Americans, so we're bringing to the table our own worldview. But I, I don't think it's um, the coverage is not being directed from the U.S. I don't suspect that that there's some uh, grand plot that. that um, but a lot Arthur of Chinese Salzburg do think. Jr. A lot of people here do think that's sure, what's going on. Sure. I think that nonetheless, not only there, Chinese. <laughs> there are there are clear clear you know some of your countrymen <laughs> reasons for. Um, reporting that that one might construe as biased but often that can be laid quite squarely at the feet of Beijing I mean I I think it would be a particularly noble individual who would be able to transcend uh, things like uh, you know surveillance electronic eavesdropping uh, being followed uh, the the general shitty treatment that 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 the Western NSA. reporters. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean the Chinese secret police? Oh, sorry. Thank, thank you for introducing that levity there. But, but, uh, yeah, uh, I'll take my fifty cents from the foreign ministry. Back. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I, I can pay you out of my account. <laughs> one thing worth exploring too is the kind of stories that people back in their home countries want to read about. I mean. 
this government gives us so many clear-cut good versus evil, David versus Goliath stories. I mean, there's not much nuance to black jails. Like what happened to Ching Chung, that's not very complicated. So I think when something like Xiaoya Liang or this case with Zhu Lian yeah, yeah. comes, comes along, uh, then when it's a little bit complicated, there's kind of resistance if there's not a clear black and white good versus evil. And I think that's a lot of the complaints that I got was if you're on the white side and I introduce a little bit of gray, then you see me as purely on the black side. So I feel like there's kind of a resistance sometimes when there is a little bit of complication to these narratives. Welcome to <laughs> welcome to Kaiser's world. <laughs> so, folks, that, that's great. I mean, I, I think we've had a productive conversation. Thanks for having. Me. So great. Uh, let's now move on to the section of our our show where we make recommendations, and let's start with our guest Andrew Jacobs. Andy, what do you have for us this week? I know I'm going to get lambasted here, but um, um uh, a Chinese movie uh, called Yushang, uh, Beijing Yushang. Uh, Seattle, Seattle, yeah. Seattle uh, Finding Mr. Right in English, uh, a very kind of cheesy pop uh, bubblegum movie about a Chinese mistress uh, who goes to Seattle to give birth to her lover's uh, son uh, and uh, ends up kind of discovering, uh, you know, the, 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 the value of, of non-material things and falls in love with a guy who doesn't make a lot of money. And uh, I, th- I thought there was a great kind of moral uh, lesson there about kind of the, the 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 depravity of you know contemporary Chinese society and this obsession with luxury goods. Because in the beginning, she you know all she cares about is buying Prada bags and shoes. Uh, in the end, she has nothing, and uh, she she comes back from Beijing. Uh, she comes back to Seattle again and, and falls in love with this this Chinese guy who basically has is you know penniless. I watched it on a plane. And I actually shed a tear. I was really embarrassed. Oh, you but, big yeah. sap! You oh my god. <laughs> That's great. I actually, I'll watch it. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm a sucker. I mean, I I the, I'm the worst movie watcher in the world because I'm completely uncritical. I just completely suspend disbelief and just just let myself fall into. So never listen to my advice on movies. That's that's my <laughs> advice. But I I will listen to your advice. That's 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 good. Jeremy, what do you have for us today? Um, I would like to recommend a rather odd thing, which is an article on a South African website about a uh, independent internet plan <clears throat> that the BRICS have apparently come up with, which would have an undersea cable linking uh, Brazil to South Africa and Mauritius, India, Singapore, uh, China, and Russia. And the uh, stated purpose of this cable is so that we don't get snooped on. Why don't you get Germany in there somehow? I mean, <laughs> anyway, I, I just think you know. I don't know if this cable will come to pass, but who it's proposed just, it? Um, I, you know, probably Lou, an yeah. academic in Cape Town. Lou, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, really? And then, what's the name of this article? It's called South Africa's Independent Internet Plan with Bricks, and I, I don't know where else it is uh, online, but I saw it on a site called mybroadband.co.za, which is the South African, uh, you know, internet.com. <laughs> so, okay. We'll post the link. And it's got a map. From, oh, yeah, it's got a map. Okay. If it's got a map, I'm, I'm, I'm going to look at it. Eric Fish, what do you have for us? Uh, my recommendation is not focused on China per se, but I think it's pretty relevant. Uh, it's called, uh, Is Glenn Greenwald the Future of News? And this was an exchange in the New York Times between Glenn Greenwald and Bill Keller. And basically the premise is, should journalists express opinions? Uh, you have activist journalists now like Glenn Greenwald who are don't, don't mince words about what they think of the stories they're reporting, whereas Bill Keller is more on the side of where you should be completely objective and not use any word that might betray what you think of the story. And 
I just thought it was relevant to China because uh, Peter Hessler wrote about this a while back and how if you're a foreign journalist in China, then the way people talk to you is different and it just kind of influences the situation. So I just, I just think it was a good thing to read with China in mind. Hmm. Great, 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 great. We'll make sure to put a link up on our site to that. I've got two recommendations. One uh, is a very, very, very good new book uh, by Rana Mitter. I don't know whether it's actually been recommended on the show here before, but I want to, if, if it has, I, it deserves a double underscore recommendation. Uh, the American title of the book is Forgotten Ally, uh, and it's about... Uh, China's war with Japan. It's about the Second World War in China. Uh, the, it has been criticized in some quarters for being a little bit soft on, on Jiang Jieshi, on, on Chiang Kai-shek, but uh, it's, it's, it's quite beautifully written, quite poignant, and, and uh, it, it's, it's excellent. It's, it's, it's very, very good history. I mean, it looks at some of these um, quite frightful episodes, like the, the breaking of the, Yangtze, of, of the Yellow River dikes uh, in the retreat from Nanjing to slow the advance of the Japanese armies, where something like half a million Chinese people were, were, were killed in the sub- subsequent flooding. Uh, very, very good read. Uh, it seems, at least by my lights, to be an even-handed treatment of both nationalists and their contributions and the communists and theirs. Um, and I'm, I'm actually not quite through it yet. I'm, I'm reading uh, about... Wang Jingwei's defection uh, when he went and was the, the, the puppet ruler of, of, of China. It's actually, of occupied China, it's actually a fairly sympathetic portrayal of him even. I mean, it gets inside his head. Mm. Um, one of the things that he does particularly well is he follows a journalist, um, Du Yongzheng, I think is his, his name. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I can't remember his name, who, who uh, traveled quite widely during the war and did Excellent, excellent reporting. I mean, it makes me want to go find this guy's pieces and read them. Uh, a a chapter. I haven't read a good book on on the Second War in China in a while, and it was very. It's been very good. I'm I'm, I'm kind of anxious to get home and, and tuck back into it. Uh, the the other recommendation I have for today is very much in keeping with today's theme. Uh, it was a, a piece written by. Uh, Jim Fallows, um, who of course spent quite a number of years here in in Shanghai and in, and here in Beijing, uh, it was you know basically about how China watchers are just sorely beset by complexity and paradox and opacity and total uncertainty about everything and just like you know what we've been talking about today. Uh, the piece is titled "False Contradiction and the Never Ending Big Question About China." Uh, subtitled "People Who Say They Know What Will Happen in China Don't," which I I I, I think is a mantra we ought to all chant. Dao ke dao fei chang dao. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, and you know, Jim's is, is wise and uh, and flies and, planes. He flies planes, and he he. It's an excellent piece, and uh, you know, it's it's written in his good old sort of folksy and very humble style. Uh, loved it. And it, I think it's it's a, a good good piece to read alongside listening to this this particular podcast. Andrew, thank you so much for coming mm, on. Great to be here. Great to have you. And Eric, thanks so much for making the time. Anytime. Well, listen to some Ufe music. She's just wonderful. Take care, and we'll see you next week.
折磨。我妻在不忍堂中养他和，进屋思见，玉兔。我尽抛却万千愁，得过且过，君不见，该是英雄军火在沧海桑田一茶Some of them are. Yeah. 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 Translations. Translations. Uh, we're gonna do a little.